Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950, with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine. Enjoy more than twenty activities and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call one eight hundred Club Med or your travel advisor. Welcome to the Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. The economic news of 2022 has been fast and furious, and it's really been a continuation of the themes of last year. What is coming out is accelerating and exacerbating the themes of last year, and of course, at its core is inflation, and in particular, inflation in the United States. We've had the bond market in the U.S. take fright a bit. Uh, with the inflation numbers and the increasing hawkishness of the Federal Reserve, by that I mean the suggestions that they will be raising interest rates as early as March, starting to reverse money printing quickly thereafter. This has led to one of the weakest starts for the U.S. equity market in many years, and within the equity markets. Uh, those people that are interested in their investments will have noticed that something called value, a style of investing pioneered by all sorts of different people, but not least Warren Buffett, after many torrid years, has had an absolutely stellar start to the year. Value investors, which is an old-fashioned investment technique, you might think it sounds very obvious that you buy assets that are cheap. In last years and the last few years of market mania. Um, it's a style that's gone out of fashion. Stocks like GameStop, which can be described in many different ways, but you certainly couldn't describe them as cheap on any conventional or indeed unconventional criteria, have done very well. And more generally, the tech boom has taken 
the tech giants to levels of valuation that are eye-watering, in some cases arguably justified in the sense that these are massively profitable companies. But the, the key ratio that we look at in accounting terms in the United States is the price of a company relative to its earnings. And it's all very well companies like Apple and Microsoft having stellar earnings. But the multiple, the price divided by earnings, the P-E ratio of all of these companies has gone to unprecedented heights. And that's taken the overall market to a very, very stretched valuation. We think on, on the way in value investors think about the U.S. equity market, that it's more expensive than the dot-com bubble of the early part of 2000, and that maybe it's more overvalued than it was in 1929, another stock market crash year. So a lot of uh, stock market bears have come out of the woodwork and um, are saying that this is it, this is the start of the big one, that the stock market is destined to go down. Uh, I up front say I have no idea, but I'm watching this with great interest and I'd be very interested in your views, always tentatively expressed about markets. But it's the inflation story that is, of course, the most interesting. One reason why I'm not apocalyptically bearish about anything, uh, although cautious short term, is that I'm on the side of the consensus when it comes to inflation, Jim, and I'd be interested in your views on this. I've just done a roundup of what economists are saying about global inflation and inflation in various countries. Uh, we just had the OECD tell us that inflation in the rich world is at a 25-year high at 5.8%. That's up from a year ago of 1.2%. So that, that's a big deal, but something kind of sort of we knew about. Uh, but the consensus forecast for inflation for 2022 is that for most countries, it's peaking at about now or at worst, the peak will be seen in March or April time. And that's because of two main reasons. One is that energy prices are thought likely to not go up very much from here. And the other bits of inflation are likely to behave similarly and indeed subside. So let's start there. Jim, what do you think about that consensus forecast for inflation, that it's basically peaking either now or sometime during the first quarter? As you say, the numbers are absolutely staggering. 5.8% in the OECD, the highest in 30 years. Eurozone inflation in December at 5.7%. And um, there are some fascinating numbers within that Eurozone figure. Estonia is running at 12%, Lithuania at 10.7%, Latvia 7.7%, Germany and Ireland 57 And there are only two countries with inflation under 2% in the Eurozone at the moment, which is Malta and Portugal. So th these are incredible numbers. And um, we last Friday, we got the US employment report, um, which was a weak enough number in terms of the overall increase in employment. But um, the interpretation is that employers are having difficulty uh, sourcing labor. Um, so that's obviously weakening the growth in employment if you can't get employees. And the second piece, well, this feeds into it directly. Um, there was a month-on-month -month increase of 0.6% in average earnings, and it's running at 4.7% year-on-year. So just to put those numbers in context, they are very strong wage growth numbers and are indicative of this underlying inflation problem in the United States. So I think in answering your question about the whole inflation dynamic, 
Um, I think it is worth looking at the United States in isolation from Europe. Um, it definitely strikes me that the inflation problem in the United States is definitely more endemic. Um, it, it is becoming more deeply ingrained in the system. And there is a strong sense that the Federal Reserve is now behind the curve in terms of tightening monetary policy. And there is a virtual unanimous expectation at this juncture that the Fed will increase rates in March. So um, that's that that's that's obviously uh, leaning heavily on equity markets at the moment. Looking at the European situation, um, you know, I mentioned those headline numbers, which are quite incredible, given what we've lived through over the last 20 years. Well, particularly over the last 10 years. But it is also interesting that energy prices were up 26 percent. So energy is the big driver of eurozone inflation. And the second highest year on year increase is food, alcohol and tobacco, which is up by 3.2 percent. So the European inflation story is definitely heavily driven by oil and energy costs. And if you believe, as I do, uh, that oil prices are now very close to a peak, although you know Brent crude is trading at over $80 a barrel today, it's up about five and a half percent since the beginning of the year, you know, having eased off towards the end of last year. So oil price is still under upward pressure. But I, I think oil prices are very close to their cyclical peak here. And that as even if oil prices stay at these levels, and I think they will actually moderate over the next six months, but even if they stay at current levels, the base effect will be quite significant in terms of measured inflation. So I would expect that inflation will remain at these elevated levels for the next two or three months, but that you will then see a significant decline in the year-on-year rates. Uh, Will that be enough to um, appease the European Central Bank? Well, Philip Lane in Dublin last week um, was throwing a lot of cold water on the inflationary fears and was basically saying that he believes, as the ECB does, that these are transitory inflationary, he called it COVID-related inflationary dynamics at the moment, and that um, they expect inflation to ease off quite significantly as the year progresses. And in fact, in 2023, I think the ECB still believes that inflation might actually undershoot its medium-term target of um, just under 2%. So that there is a strong consensus out there, and I would agree with that consensus, which is probably always a very dangerous place to be. Um, we, in, in considering how the European Central Bank will respond to all of this, um, we have the new head of the Bundesbank um, coming in from the Bank of International Settlements, a guy called Joachim Nagel. He's the 11th president of the Bundesbank. He's, as I say, he's coming from the Bank of International Settlements. And um, I think he will have two main tasks in his early days. One is to try and ease some of the tensions that had arisen in the European Central Bank across the board, um, largely driven by his predecessor, Weidmann, who unexpectedly stepped down as head of the Bundesbank, or at, at least announced he was stepping down last October. So Weidmann was definitely, uh, as you'd expect from a Bundesbanker, very bearish on inflation, believed that the European Central Bank should have tightened monetary policy um okay and that that creates a lot of division so he's going to have to try and um as the effective leader of the european central bank although not the president 
but the Bundesbank head is always an incredibly influential person within the ECB's governing board. But um, he's going to have to try and, you know, ease some of those tensions. And I guess the second thing he's going to have to do is, you know, particularly calm down Germans who are very nervous at inflation at 5.7%, which is the highest level since the Deutschmark went out of existence. So that has all sorts of um, very, very difficult resonances in, in Germany, given the historical, given the past and, and, and so on. So um, Nagel's reaction on the inflation front over the next few weeks will be incredibly interesting to see how it drives ECB policy. I suspect the ECB will keep official interest rates on hold for a while longer. Yeah, your remarks about Philip Lane, the Irishman who's the chief economist of the ECB and uh, has a reputation now in the marketplace of being an uber dove uh, in terms of what he's been saying and recommending for interest rates. In other words, that he doesn't want them to go up because he thinks that the inflation problem is temporary. I'm reminded of an article written in the last day or two by a a well-known monetary economist in the States, Frederick Mishkin, who's saying that the Fed has made a mistake. And it's a mistake in economic diagnosis in that the Fed's original position, which is that it was a supply shock, was absolutely right. And the way in which central banks respond to supply shocks is exactly the way they did respond, which is to do nothing. And that's Philip Lane's argument that this is a supply shock. Mishkin's argument is that that was only partially correct in that they've the United States in particular, but maybe other countries as well, have also, in addition to the supply shock, had a demand shock because of all essentially the stimulus from fiscal policy, putting money in people's pockets through various ways, both people and companies, has stimulated the demand side of the economy. And central banks are there to manage the demand side of the economy, not the supply side. And that if demand is going up in the way that it is in the United States and elsewhere, the central bank has to respond. And that's the bit he says that the Fed has got wrong. And if the Fed has got it wrong, I'm wondering if Philip Lane has got it wrong, actually. Um, Now, obviously, Europe is not in the same economic position cyclically as the United States. It's not growing as strongly, but it is growing. I wonder if in a few months' time, we might not be wondering about Philip Lane's focus on the supply side and maybe a neglect of the demand side because Europe hasn't done as much stimulus as the United States, but it has done quite a lot. So my best guess, putting all of that together, is that the consensus is broadly right and that provided energy prices and food prices and wage setting behavior are all along the lines that you've suggested, then we will get that peak in inflation But I have a hunch it might take a bit longer than the consensus thinks. So therefore, we might be in for a very sticky first half of the year with respect to the interplay between inflation, bond markets, equity markets, and indeed other asset prices. Because one of the things that rising bond yields, rising interest rates will do is it will affect everything, not least, of course, our old friend house prices, something we've also talked about a lot. So I think that that it will be okay ultimately. But I think it could be a bit stickier for a bit longer than that cosy consensus would have it. Obviously, I don't know. I've made lots of remarks in the past about beware economic forecasts. But I do think that we are in for a spot of bother when it comes to to this uh, nexus, this interplay between the, the very powerful forces of inflation 
interest rates, bond yields, equity markets, and indeed everything else that we invest our savings in. And one of the reasons why I am a little bit concerned about the stickiness of inflation is the final thing in that triple factor analysis of inflation. Um, We talk about energy prices, we talk about food prices, and we talk about wage setting behavior. It reminds me of the financial, the one piece of financial advice that I have been giving to people, given my read of the labor market in the UK, in Ireland, United States and elsewhere. And the labor markets are very tight everywhere. The one piece of financial advice that I would give to people this year is ask for a raise. Now, central banks will hate me for giving that advice to the extent that they pay any attention to me. And if people follow that advice and both ask and get the raise, then we are in for a bigger inflation problem than the consensus thinks. But if you were in gainful employment today, Jim, I'd be saying to you, ask your boss for a raise. What do you think? Well, if I ask myself for a raise, I'm not going to get it. Uh, No, I I actually agree with you. I, I think this is a labor market period when workers definitely have more bargaining power and um, the, 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 the obvious inclination there is to go for um, wage increase if you can get it. Uh, in, in terms of, and, and of course, if that starts to happen, well, then uh, a transitory inflation problem definitely becomes a lot less transitory of an inflation problem. And that's when central bankers really start to get concerned um, that they're, I suppose I, I've had a view for some time that given the level of indebtedness across the euro area, um, as a result of the COVID response, that the European Central Bank would be very curtailed in what it could do in terms of increasing interest rates, because that could start to create uh, debt sustainability problems for many countries across the eurozone, including Ireland, um, and that that would deter the European Central Bank. And I kind of stand by that view. I think that the, the fiscal parameters at the moment definitely limit the extent to which the ECB can increase interest rates. And if the ECB does turn around and increase interest rates, I actually think it may at the same time have to up its bond buying program again to make sure that long-term interest rates, which determine government borrowing costs, actually remain low and that its short-term interest rates rise. So basically, the European Central Bank may have to try and engage in some interesting yield curve manipulation how do you think i think that'll be a very strange world whereby they're raising interest rates but continuing to print money Uh, that's a very very unconventional monetary policy stance as you say it amounts to yield curve management i I think that they struggle to get that past the new bundesbank member of the ecb council to be honest i also read a piece the other day and it was by some chief executive of some asset management company. I forget exactly who it was. And it was the same article that I've seen written by countless other people really every year or every month since the creation of the euro, saying that this year is the crunch time for the euro because what the ECB has to do on the inflation front is as we have been describing, but because Italian banks are in such a parlous state, they won't be able to raise interest rates. And there's always a reason why policy is described in the euro area by opponents of the euro to be in a mess. And it's quite possible that the next 12 months could see, according to this article, or at least implied by this article, the demise of the euro. How many times have you read that article over the last 20 years, Jim? History will show that the demise of the euro was a hell of a lot closer 
than many people realized back in that 2011 2013 period yeah so, but uh, we're still, here we are we're, we're oh, still, of course uh, and, and i guess the one thing that has ensured the survival of the euro and that will ensure is the political will to keep it going and yes. we, we've seen so many times that the political system will do whatever it takes to make sure this survives so uh, i certainly wouldn't be um, basing an investment strategy on the demise of the euro anytime soon, despite all of its flaws, um, it's 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 with us. But Chris, I'd like to. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about. Uh, one is Boris Johnson, but I'll, I'll park that for the moment. The second thing is um, I, I've heard you in other podcasts over the last year or two uh, talk very dismissively about cryptocurrency. Okay. Um, I came across an interesting piece from the International Monetary Fund in the last 24 hours where the basic argument that the IMF writer was making was that cryptocurrency prices are now moving much more in sync with equities or stocks, okay, and that uh, they are now, that they have become an integral part of what the IMF describes as the digital asset revolution. and it valued the the market value of these novel assets at three trillion dollars in November, up from six hundred and twenty billion dollars in twenty seventeen, and today the value of the market is down at about two trillion. So uh, cryptocurrencies and those di- digital assets are becoming much more volatile, and as the IMF is saying, they're becoming much more aligned to. The volatility in equity markets and as a consequence of that that they are now starting to lose their perceived diversification attributes and that and i suppose most tellingly they now pose a significant threat to financial stability in other words as an asset class like like this like cryptocurrency becomes um, much more mainstream in terms of institutional and personal investment portfolios that if you get the same sort of volatility, uh, that that could create serious problems. Um, as a skeptic of cryptocurrency from for quite a long time, uh, what do you think of that analysis in the IMF? Well, there are more than one cryptocurrencies out there, as as you well know, mm. Jim. It's not just Bitcoin. No, it's not. But, yeah, yeah. Bitcoin is about today as it's trading and it goes up and down a lot every day as you know it is very they are it, it is more volatile than the equity market but much more the, this asset class generally as the imf has identified is much more correlated with the equity market and i think that's interesting bitcoin is about the same price today as it was in the first week of february last year so on an 11 months nearly a year it, it's unchanged for all of the hype for all of the going you could have made and lost a lot of money with all the volatility last year uh, if you manage to buy at the bottom and sell at the top, uh, but good luck with that. Um, I don't understand the rationale behind these Bitcoin currencies, and I suspect people like the IMF don't either. What I do know is that people like the IMF and central banks around the world don't like them for the reasons that you've just suggested, that A, they don't make any sense, and B, that they pose a threat to financial stability. One of the ways in which any asset class can pose a threat to price to financial stability is when the price goes down, it reveals the people who have borrowed money to invest in it. If everybody has just invested their own cash, their own assets in this, it just means a lot of people will have lost a lot of money if and when these things do crash. That brings 
consequences, people going bust and all the rest of it. But it, it really depends on how much debt has been incurred, how much people have borrowed, how much money people have borrowed to actually invest in these things, investing on margin or, or using bank loans or their credit cards or whatever. I mean, one of the reasons why we had the financial crisis is that the, the money that people used to buy houses was generally speaking borrowed um, via mortgages. We just don't know how, we don't really have any data for how these people who are buying Bitcoin and the rest of it are financing their, their purchases. So I suspect there's a lot of ignorance about this, that, that that in itself would worry the IMF. But if these things are behaving like equities, um, I think that that also is a source of concern because they're supposed to be a diversification uh, of risk. And if they're not doing the diversifying, again, you wonder, that's one rationale for their existence out the window. The, the other rationale that I've often heard people who take issue with me with my anti-crypto stance is that because people don't trust governments anymore, and in particular, people don't trust central banks because of all this money printing, you need a different store of value. And this is free of government interference. This is free of central bank money printing. It's a purer form of a store of value, is that if we are moving into a world where the central banks, as we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, are starting to move to take control again of the inflation process, and you believe that ultimately via raising interest rates, via reverse of all the money printing, they are going to get monetary stability re-established. That's one rationale for these cryptos being taken away. So that, that I think, is an interesting one. A skeptic would say, well, as much as central banks are going to try to raise interest rates to control inflation, they're not going to succeed. That's why I love crypto. We'll see who wins that debate. The other thing that I would say is that uh, it's quite clear that central banks everywhere are inching ever closer to saying, okay, digital currencies are here. We don't like the ones that are in existence, but we, we like the technology that underlies these currencies. We think digitalization is clearly a good thing, um, up to a certain point anyway, with, with some reservations, because in a world of digital currencies, you wonder what the role of the banking system is. And I know central banks don't want to destroy the banking system, at least not overnight, but they are inching ever closer to creating their own digital currencies, central bank money, central bank digital money. If it wasn't for those worries about what that would do to the banking system, because if we had central bank digital money, we'd all end up with accounts with the central bank instead of having accounts with Bank of Ireland or Barclays or any of the other retail banks that we use. And so what what happens to the banking system will be a concern. If it wasn't for that concern, I think central banks would have been issuing and getting much closer rather than inching towards their own um, digital currencies. So there's, there's a lot going on, and I think a lot to play for, and I think it's going to remain a very active debate. I feel that, you know, over the last three or four months, Bitcoin's essentially gone down. And so um, I feel a bit vindicated over that short time period. As I say, over a year, it's unchanged. So the jury is still out on whose view is right. But I, I remain a skeptic, Jim. I'm a total skeptic. Um, to be perfectly honest, I just don't understand Bitcoin, how um, something that is uh, a medium of exchange um, can have this inherent value. I, ju I just don't get it, to be honest. And I've read a lot about it. And um, my, my overall attitude would be personally, I would not invest in any asset class that I do not understand uh, full stop. So, but but I'm I'm curious definitely by what the IMF is saying. Uh, Chris, uh, 
for anybody who has listened to um, the other hand since we launched just coming coming up um, a year ago short shortly um, but also for people who would have listened to you on Eamon Dunphy's the stand over the last couple of years particularly in the last six months or so the one thing they would notice about you is your very very deep antipathy towards Boris Johnson and um, it was interesting somebody contacted me on social media on Friday night and there was a story doing the rounds that actually Boris might come out of COVID looking a hell of a lot better than many other leaders around the world. And um, the, the guy said to me, um, how will your your, your colleague, um, Skeet Offer, which is you, um, react to that? So well, um... <laughs> it's, it's a question I have asked myself many times, in particular since Johnson, unlike the devolved administrations in Scotland and Wales, refused to increase restrictions uh, there towards the end of December as Omicron was was going up. I mean, the you know, energy prices or Omicron, which is going up faster is the question we've been asking ourselves. And he took the, the gamble, because that's what he is. He's a gambler to not increase England's restrictions. So in Wales, you can't go to a nightclub, but in England, you can, for example. Um, so there are some restrictions, but they're pretty mild in England. Uh, and like a lot of Johnson's gambles in the past, uh, he might, this one might pay off because it looks like the, um, and this is all very tentative, of course, can, things can change in a heartbeat with this virus, but it looks like in London at least, if not elsewhere in the UK, that Omicron might have peaked and with it, with a lag, the hospitalizations. We know that there's a lot of emerging evidence that Omicron is in fact quite mild for all sorts of disputed reasons. So yes, he might get away with it and he might get some benefit politically and electorally from the fact that he gambled and not imposed restrictions. And the idiot that runs the Welsh administration, um, I can't even say his name, it just annoys me so much, um, will be shown up uh, for being a political posturer for essentially having a COVID policy that is, I'll do whatever Boris Johnson doesn't do. I can make similar remarks about Scotland, but I know less about Scotland than I know about Wales. And that is what it is, as they say. That was my new, my new Year's resolution, by the way, was to stop using that phrase. So I've just broken it. Um, that doesn't take away from the balance sheet of Johnson's pluses and minuses and the, the big minus at the moment is that it looks like he has lied to Parliament about attending parties in the Garden of Downing Street during the full lockdown during the first half of 2020, and maybe in the second half of 2020 during the second or and or the third lockdown. And so as you probably know, Jim, there's a big Ferrari about that. And he is trying to deflect, he's trying to dissemble, but he's in serious trouble. He's in serious trouble because it looks like he lied again. And he's been caught out in so many lies now. I think that people are losing any faith. Why they had any faith in him in the first place, I have no idea, because we all knew that this was the man. This is who he is. This is what he does. And uh, this is not backward trading. This is not using hindsight. Uh, when Johnson came to power, people like me and much more important people than me said it. His ex-bosses have said it. Uh, people close to him said it at the time. This is this is the nature of the man. 
you should uh, it's available on the internet is a school report written about Johnson when he was of course at Eton and it was excoriating and it but it described him brilliantly and it described the boy that became the man who has not changed in terms of the way he his relationship with the truth which is a very distant one and he's in a lot of trouble there was an opinion poll published only today and these things change very rapidly but two-thirds of people polled today thought that Johnson should resign because of the party issue during lockdown. So yes, he may get lucky with his COVID policies. And in many ways, I hope he does, because if he does get lucky, it means that Omicron fades away and further restrictions aren't necessary. So I actually hope that he was right. Um, And part of me thinks that he was right, actually, to, to do what he did. But just because somebody does something right, doesn't mean that the rest is forgiven. And in Johnson's case, it most emphatically is not. I think he's in a lot of political trouble now. So for for our listener who contacted me, um, you're not going to relent on that one? No, not um, a chance. That's okay. Uh, it's, it, it is interesting. Actually, there is a there has been a court case going on here. I think it's, um, it's parked for the moment, but there's a court case going on. Two politicians and two hoteliers who were involved in that golf gate incident um down in Clifton um they are you know they're 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 in, in front of the law at the moment they're being charged with breaching covid legislation um and if you think back to that golfgate situation Phil Hogan the european commissioner was forced to resign because Leo Varadkar basically hung him out to dry offered him no support um a judge who was also at it survived because um he refused to go basically um, so there's, there's there's a very different approach to it here, and I have no doubt that if Boris was here in Ireland, he'd be well gone at this stage. I think there's no doubt about that. So it, it is extraordinary. On the COVID front, um, you know, you talk about the experience in the UK with Omicron. Um, I noticed that yesterday in the United States, 1.1 million cases, which is the highest level that has been achieved since the crisis began back in March 2020. And the US health system is now under serious pressure. And this is the law of big numbers, I guess, or the law of small numbers, whatever you want to call it. But it's the fact that um, while the the relationship between COVID and hospitalization and serious illness has broken down significantly, the numbers are now just so large that the US health system is under significant pressure. Um, I noticed in Scotland that for anybody who wants to go and see Ross County play Glasgow Celtic, uh, restrictions on outdoor events are being lifted from next Monday. Um, So that's interesting. And here in Ireland, the government, the Minister for, sorry, the Taoiseach has made it clear that the eight o'clock closing, closing, excuse me, of pubs and restaurants and other gatherings uh, will not be addressed this week. So bizarrely, in my view, pubs and restaurants are still forced to shut down at eight o'clock. Um, what that achieves, I have absolutely no idea. But um, the government seems to have no interest in actually revisiting at this point. Um, we've had a bit of a debate here over the last few days about the possibility or the consideration that Neffet is giving to making vaccines mandatory uh, but the Taoiseach and other government ministers have come out very clearly saying that um, it, vaccines will not become mandatory in this country. And I think that's 
the correct approach to take because I think it would backfire very, very badly. Um, so there's there's still a lot of stuff going on on the Omicron front, but uh, it, it is definitely looking, um, well, I think it's looking a hell of a lot more positive than it was this time last year. Yeah, I'd agree. And the numbers just over the last few days, so heavily caveated coming out of the UK, suggest that, and it is only a suggestion, that we might be turning the corner on Omicron. Obviously, the numbers are still crazily high. Um, as we speak, another 140,000 was the official daily number. It's probably higher than that in reality, but that's a lot lower than it has been. And hospital admissions fell slightly in, in terms of the last daily number. So there are some indications, some causes of hope. One of the really interesting things that I have not seen any explanation of, other than that it's just the numbers are wrong and we're not recording things properly, is just how much worse the Irish case numbers are relative to the UK. It's not just a little bit worse, they're massively worse per capita on a population-adjusted basis. Your numbers are orders of magnitude and have been for the last couple of weeks higher than they are here. Worse than the United States, for example, you just mentioned, the Irish numbers are terrible. Have you seen any theories or explanations as to why this might be the case? Uh, No, I I haven't really, but anecdotally, I just know so many people who have had COVID over the last couple of weeks, extraordinary whole families, and there was serious disruption over the Christmas period. And definitely since the whole thing started back in March 2020, I now know an awful lot more people with COVID than at any stage during the crisis. It has really taken off. Um, I, I think people's behaviour, you know, people are just fed up with it all because let's face it, Ireland has on an average basis, been subject to the most stringent conditions across the world virtually over the last couple of years. So we've lived through serious restrictions. Um, Lots of promises have been made about uh, just two more weeks to flatten the curve, all that sort of bullshit. And and I think people just basically um, over the last three or four weeks have given up on it and have tried to live as normal lives as they possibly can. And um, thankfully, because the um, because Omicron is having m- much milder impacts on health than Delta, for example, you know, it, it, it is working out. But I, I think that's it. I think people have just basically said, um, we've had enough of this. We want to get on with living. Um, yeah. and, that, and I think they're right. And I think I, I've come across quite a few people who think that it's inevitable that they, uh, because of it, it's more infectious than measles and all that kind of stuff, it's inevitable that they're going to be exposed to Omicron sooner rather than later. So let's just get on with it. It's a kind of fatalistic attitude that it's it's almost inevitable that if we're not actually going to get it, we're certainly going to be exposed to it. Um, and if it is that inevitable, um, why delay the inevitable? So that I think we should probably call it there, Jim. Um, that leaves quite a lot on the table to talk about next time, as always. But uh, thanks for another great discussion and speak to you next time. Yeah, super, Chris. Talk to you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms.
Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us. Call one eight hundred Club Med or your travel advisor.